Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, it is a complex and for some a very difficult conversation to talk about. But we're going to spend the entire hour talking about it in just a moment. Suicide. Every 11 minutes, someone in the U.S. dies by suicide. That's according to the CDC. We'll address national and state programs focusing on training and resources for those affected. And we'll take a look at the suicide rates among young children and teens. So that's coming up. That's all just ahead. But we'll begin with news from the state capitol as lawmakers are bustling to get measures through or not through. Let's get right to it and welcome in Raul Bali from our WABE politics team live from the steps of the Gold Dome. Raul, welcome. And good afternoon, Rose. Well, you know, we're just under a week out from crossover day. Uh, Raul, remind our listeners what that's all about. So traditionally, crossover day is the final day that bills can move from the House to the Senate, Senate to the House. Now, of course, there are plenty of ways around those rules. But what it really is, it's a tool for the legislative gatekeepers to say, hey, look, your bill didn't make it this year, maybe next year. Uh, This year, crossover day is this Monday. That's the 28th day of the 40-day session. And Raul, what's the mood now at the Capitol as this deadline approaches? So uh, earlier this morning, I actually was with an earshot of a conversation between a lawmaker and a committee chairperson. Mm And and that lawmaker was, hey, can you please hold another meeting of your committee so I can get my bill through crossover? So that's like one of the conversations you're hearing. Also, days are getting longer here. Look, the State House just held its first lunch break of the whole session. Mm -hmm. They just went back in as they still have a stack of bills to go through. And now we're starting to get more of those 7 a.m. hearings. Mm -hmm. And now we're getting more 6 p.m. and even 7 p.m. hearings here at the state capitol. So is it common that you might have a a state lawmaker pulling a committee person aside saying, look, you know, what can I do here? Can you make sure my bill gets at least another hearing or gets a hearing, period? That I mean, that's that that would be the goal. I mean, if you want to get your bill passed or you don't want someone to say it didn't get through the crossover, You've got to hope that that a committee would would hold one more hearing or even move your bill to another committee if that's even possible. Let me ask you, who makes that decision? Is it the committee as a whole or is it the chair? Here at the state capitol, that power lies strictly with the chair of the committee. Hmm. You know, we've been hearing conversations, for example, about the Okefenokee bill. Mm -hmm. In the end, it is the chairperson of that committee who makes the decision on what bills are heard or not heard. Wow. Lawmakers are still plugging away, Raul. It's one of the biggest items, of course, is the budget. What's the latest with that? So let's start with the 2023 budget. That's the one that's currently funding state government uh, through June 30th. The proposal to amend that budget actually just a few minutes ago went to a House-Senate conference committee so they can work out the differences between the House and Senate versions. Here are the big things that are in that budget. Mm-hmm. Includes a billion dollars for property tax uh, relief. That's about $500 per, per homeowner in Georgia. There's a billion dollars of state income tax relief. That's going to come out to about 250 uh, per person. And you guys may remember we had the 10 month gas tax suspension. Mm-hmm. Well, that's got to be paid back. And that's also about a billion dollars. Back to that conference committee, they've got to work out differences between the House and the Senate versions of the bill. And, and one perfect example is the House uh, said, let's do $60,000 safety grants per school. The governor and the Senate want 50,000 per Mm -hmm. school so they just got to work out those numbers that that's a perfect example once that's all done then you got to go work on what's called the big budget the 2024 budget and that's what kicks in july 1st and and let me give you one interesting bit of insight blake tillery who is the chairman of senate appropriations he's he's out here warning folks look 
this budget may not be as easy as people think it, it's going to be. He goes, this is the budget where inflation mm-hmm. and issues around inflation are really going to kick in. Now, for folks that may not understand this, if there is any measure that is crucial, it is this budget. They have to get that nailed down. It, it's written in law, basically, yeah. in the Constitution, that y- y'all got to get a budget done. So, <laughs> uh, you know, the late David Ralston, the former House Speaker, always said, Number one, most important responsibility, the only thing we have to do is pass a budget. And Raul, perhaps folks thought we were done with any type of measures that would impact Georgia's election laws. But here we go with Senate Bill 221. It's another Mm -hmm. major elections bill. What's this all about? So we are uh, just now digging. So, you know, there were a bunch of election bills and we were trying to figure out which is going to be the key election bill. And and it seems like this morning it's really come together. It's going to be Senate Bill 221. Um, there's a draft copy that's going around the Capitol. And it's got a few things in it. it it's one of the things it deals with is voter registration uh, challenges, for mm-hmm. example, and, and how that works. I, I'm still trying to understand that language. Banning non-citizens as election workers mm. is in there. Um, stopping nonprofits from donating to the administration of elections, kind of the the situation you've been hearing over uh, in DeKalb County. Mm -hmm. By the way, there's also one really interesting one that I hadn't even heard before. Live streaming of absentee ballot drop boxes is also in the bill. I I don't even know how local, I mean, local governments would have to set that up or or the local election offices. Those are just some of the things that that we've seen in this bill. And by the way, you know I mentioned 6 p.m. hearings. Mm -hmm. That actually has a 6 p.m. The Senate Ethics Committee will have a 6 p.m. hearing on that elections bill today. Wow. Let's turn to Buckhead City. We know that yesterday it cleared two very crucial uh, hurdle here, which is the committees. Now, it reappeared this session, and this is related to a voting referendum bill. It's cleared the Senate committee. There are two bills here. One Is it 113 and 114? What's yeah. the difference here? So 114 is what deals with the actual Buckhead cityhood portion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what you've heard before. A referendum of Buckhead residents to leave the city of Atlanta and create a new city. Senate Bill 113 is getting more and more attention because it's, it's in a way, a companion bill, but it's also a bill that will affect, that could affect other cities and governments. And it really deals with the transfer of property mm-hmm. from, you know, a current city into a new city. And, and some of the numbers have, have really gotten people's attention. Raul, on. I've heard words like, um, this is what I've read, this is wacky, this is crazy. This is unprecedented in terms of what would what the city of Atlanta, you know, if everything went through, would have to basically give the city of Buckhead in terms of these great deals as it relates to land purchases, city owned buildings. It is I'll just say this. It's something it is. It, let me give you an example. The purchase price for land between what, well, for example, the city of Atlanta and Buckhead City would be one hundred dollars an acre. You and I both know that there's no land in Buckhead that's $100 an acre. No. Uh, buildings would be $1,000. Now, I don't know if those includes, and, and here's where it gets dicey. You're trying, it says just buildings. It doesn't say school buildings mm-hmm. or public safety buildings. So are we talking about school buildings? Are we talking about firehouses? No matter what, those buildings are more than $1,000 a yeah. building. Wow. Um, and, and the other one that's being pointed out, $100,000 for the water system. Um, Raul, what's the likelihood of these getting (laughs) through both chambers? I don't know, honestly. That this is one of those where I just have to tell people I don't know. There are obviously Democrats. Most, you know, almost every Democrat. I haven't heard Democrats who are for it. The vast majority of Democrats are are against it. I have talked to Republicans who are concerned about it or even oppose it. But the question is, how much arm twisting will there be, for example, in the Senate, where the bill is right now? And who knows what's going to happen in the House, specifically watching what House Speaker John Burns does with it. Mm. I want to do a little rapid fire with you for a moment. I'm going to give you the issue and you tell me whether or not you think it's going to make it. Uh, Sports betting. I I think here's where sports betting is going. It is only going so that for 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 our audience who's who's trying to watch for a bill, House Bill 380 is going to probably be the one to watch. And here's why. That is only online sports betting on your phone and on your iPad only you know there's no kiosk there's no 
uh, horse racing. Mm -hmm. This is strictly what you can do on your smartphone and your smart device and bet online. Because we've heard from House Speaker uh, Burns who says, look, I'm not looking to do casino gambling or mm -hmm. horse racing this year. So wow. that's the bill I'm following because all the other bills have some level of that. And this does not involve a constitutional amendment. Let's talk about affordable housing legislation that would make changes to local level, local level restrictions. Bipartisan support here? This one's going to be really... So in general, when we're talking about affordable housing... It's everybody wants to do something about affordable housing, but no one's on the same page, mm -hmm. uh, even by party. But it comes down to this. You have a, a set of bills from State Representative Dale Washburn, who's been on our air. And it's basically saying, look, local governments cannot tell builders what they can and can't do with their property to make properties a little more expensive. You know, for example, you know, you know, limits on lot size, mm -hmm. you know, or you know banning vinyl zoning siding. or something like that exactly yeah. for example a perfect example is vinyl siding mm -hmm. on homes makes homes cheaper makes it a little more affordable but if a city bans it of course means the properties are going to be worth a little more money because they would or would not yeah. have vinyl siding that's a perfect example and that's something that some lawmakers want to say look local governments can't say no to vinyl siding okay mm -hmm. but you're going to have local control republicans local control democrats who are going to be against it and then you're going to have people who are going to be like, look, we need affordable housing. It's going to be an interesting split, and we'll see what happens with it. And this is a big issue, banning car booting throughout the state. This got my attention when this bill was filed last week by State Representative Josh McLaurin, who is a Democrat. But the reason it jumped out at me was the other names on the bill, powerful Republicans, uh, including State Senator uh, Bill Cowsert, Frank Ginn. Uh, Chuck Payne, it got my attention. And look, it's plain and simple. It is a flat, all-out ban on booting anywhere by governments, private property, anybody. It is a flat-out, complete ban. That's what he's going for with this. There are other versions of this bill. I'm just going to be interested to see what happens with those. All right. Ra Raul Bali, WABE's politics reporter, live from the state capital steps. As always, Raul, we appreciate you taking time. Thank you. Always good to be on. All right, Closer Look returns in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Do life's challenges have you feeling down? You are not alone, but help is just a phone call away. Call or text 988. No judgment, no cost, just help and support. If you're struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, we're here for you because you matter. And that is a public service announcement for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number, which is 988. It launched last summer. The 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is connected to a network of over 200 local crisis centers. And here's what we know. More than 2 million calls, messages and texts were answered in 2022. You're listening to a special edition of Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Today's focus, suicide. And yes, it's one of the leading causes of death in the U.S. Now, after two straight years of declines in suicide rates, the most recent numbers that we get from the CDC, CDC reveal an increase for 2021. So as we begin today's special, let's welcome in Dr. Asha Ivy Stevenson from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention She's a lieutenant commander of the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps and a behavioral scientist and epidemiologist for the CDC suicide prevention team in the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. That's a lot, but I wanted to get it out. Dr. Ivy Stevenson, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor. Thank you. You know, when we talk about 
where we've been and where we've come as a nation. And I'm probably going to ask everyone to talk about this today. You think about the strides that we've made. How far has this nation come in being able to provide resources, bring awareness and, and hope for folks who are all affected by this? Well, this that's a great starting place. Um, one of the things you mentioned is that, you know, suicide is a leading cause of death in the U.S. Um, in 2021, you know, more specifically, suicide was the 11th leading cause of death. Um, and as you start to break things down by race, ethnicity, um, age group, that leading cause of death gets a little bit higher. So, for example, it's the fifth leading cause of death among those 10 to 64. If you move even earlier in age to youth, mm -hmm. 10 to 14 years, it's the second leading cause of death, as it is for those ages 25 to 34. So this is definitely an issue, not just an issue, but a public health issue. Um, we need to approach it and we look at it at CDC through the lens of public health, mm -hmm. um, where we um, try to make sure that we provide resources to communities, states, uh, tribes to be able to combat this issue. And when it comes to looking at specific demographics and communities that perhaps have not been getting the, the same amount of, of resources, I could take a guess at this and, and probably come up with those demographics myself, but I'll let you tell our listeners what communities are we talking about here? Yeah, um, unfortunately, you know, we do have um, what we call disproportionately affected populations. Mm -hmm. um, so um, these are populations um, such as veterans, uh, people who live in rural areas, sexual and gender minorities, mm -hmm. tribal populations. Um, to give you a little bit of example of some of the data, we just had a report came out that came out through our, it's called MMWR, mm -hmm. our Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report. And this is speaking to recent changes in suicide rates by race, ethnicity, and age group for 2021. Um, one of the things that we found was that for 2021, when you looked at suicide rates, they were highest among non-Hispanic, American Indian, or Alaska Native persons. And this is this is what we've seen for years. Mm -hmm. um, this particular group also experienced the highest percent increase, which means you're seeing the, if you're thinking of kind of a, a graph, you're seeing that line go up and increase mm -hmm. from the years 2018 to 2021. Uh, one of the other groups I want to mention that we highlighted um, in terms of findings from that particular report is that age-adjusted rates are also increasing and have increased significantly among non-Hispanic Black or African-American persons. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is definitely an issue, particularly among young Black um, persons. I received an, an, a text from a friend of mine about this today's topic, and he said, you know, thank you so much for doing this. It's an epidemic, he calls it, among Black men right now. What we do, what we do know is that this is one of the things I want to encourage and, and really kind of um, make people aware of is suicide is preventable. Mm -hmm. uh, prevention is possible. One of the things we, you know, our vision at CDC is that no lives lost to suicide. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we do, and we have um, a lot of years of experience in this area um, I sit on the suicide prevention team mm -hmm. in the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control um, on the Division of Injury Prevention. And we have quite a few efforts that um, we're working with communities, states, tribes um, from the lens of what we call comprehensive suicide prevention. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, uh, doctor, because that's going to look different in different communities. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yes, yes, you are absolutely correct. Um, one of the things that we do know is we have a new, um, a new document, a new resource for communities, for states. It's called the Suicide Prevention Resource for Action. And again, this is a CDC publication that we, we pushed out. Um, this particular publication details a select group of strategies that are based on the best available evidence 
to help communities and states really start to sharpen their focus on priorities with the greatest potential to prevent suicide. And Mm -hmm. while there's a a select group of strategies and we have specific policies, programs, and practices, as you mentioned, Rose, this is something that needs to be considered and implemented and adapted differently for different communities. Let me ask you this. And often I I like to, to ask experts, you know, when we get outside of the United States, are there other nations or are there other I guess, uh, programs or initiatives that might be working in another part of the world that we could adopt or look at as a template that you know of? We do have um, relationships um, with, you know, suicide is is definitely not just a um, issue that's, you know, confined to the U.S., um, so one of the things that we, we do have relationships with colleagues um, in various other countries who are doing great work in this area. Um, one of the things that we've, we found, and as I mentioned, that particular resource, mm-hmm. we identified um, seven specific strategies hmm. um, that we consider, based on the best available evidence, um, these are things we want to, to, for communities and states to focus on. Mm -hmm. Uh, We start with these strategies, there's seven, Mm -hmm. and these are what we call the actions to achieve the goal of preventing, you know, preventing suicide. But each strategy, each of those seven strategies has an approach Mm -hmm. and each approach has a specific program policy and practice. And all of these are from various studies that we've pulled from, research that we've pulled from, um, of things that actually work. Like I said, they need to be adapted Mm -hmm. for communities context, but these are based on uh, best available evidence. Now, you know, and listen, whether it's a city the size of Atlanta or a small town in in South in South Georgia, you know, funding comes in. And I know you all don't don't have if you could, you would be able to fund people. But when you look at that, this takes some of these initiatives might take funding for those communities those small towns or those cities that may not have that, can they still, is there, do they have to have, uh, I guess, some type of other sources that, that they can turn to? If you're talking about, look, maybe even having for some towns, they, they don't even have a mental health center to turn to, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. I mean, how, how, do, you suge- how do you suggest, will these tools still fit for them? That's a great, a great point. Um, there are a number, and that's one of the things that we, we thought about and we considered um, in providing this and developing this prevention resource is um, looking at all different types of communities. One of the things I do want to mention, though, is that some of the work that we have, you mentioned funding. Mm-hmm. Um, so at CDC, you know, we do fund um, specific states, tribes to, to do this work. Mm-hmm. and. We provide technical assistance. We provide support. Um, one of our largest efforts is called the Comprehensive Suicide Prevention Program. Mm-hmm. And this is where we funded um, 17 states um, and, and to implement and evaluate what we call that comprehensive public ap- health approach to suicide prevention. You talked about this will take time and we mm-hmm. know that. And so this, this particular funding opportunity is over the course of five years with an ambitious goal of reducing Mm -hmm. suicide and suicide attempts among disproportionately affected populations over five years by 10%. We know that's ambitious, but that's what our goal is for that particular program. Well, and one of your strategies you all have is it's related to, as you call it, promote healthy connections. Because then for a lot of folks, it's just knowing, knowing where to turn to get help or someone that you know that you suspect might be at risk, just being able to, to say, oh, I can go here because I know about this. Here's a connection. It's going to look different in Atlanta than it might look in, in Albany, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, you're right on. Um, the promoting healthy connections is one of the strategies in that Suicide Prevention Resource for Action. And we know um, that one of the strongest protective factors, we often talk about and hear about risk factors, but we do know that the strongest protective factor for suicide is connectedness, just mm-hmm. what you said. Um, connectedness and related constructs such as social support, 
social capital. These are things that can really protect individuals against suicidal behavior, decreasing isolation, increasing belongingness. These are all things that are really important. Um, and that particular um, strategy has some approaches and programs that go under that that have been shown to reduce um, suicidal behavior. Dr. Aisha Ivy Stevenson, stay with us. She's from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We're going to take a break, and I understand you can stay with us for the entire hour if you'd like. We have another guest coming on, but we want you to hang with us. You're listening to Closer Look. Supervision Officer for the Georgia Department of Community Supervision. At DCS, we strive to create a supportive environment and a family culture. To that extent, it is imperative that we continue to bring awareness to suicide prevention, especially for law enforcement officers. It can impact anyone and anywhere. Our CSOs and partners in law enforcement are often on the scene of very emotionally demanding situations. We encourage all officers to take advantage of all mental health resources and to never be afraid to speak up. And it is called Suicide Prevention. That is a PSA that we've been collecting a bunch of these for today, and we'll have access to all of these on our website at wabe.org slash Closer Look. As this special edition of Closer Look continues, we focus on suicide awareness, resources, and prevention. Now we're going to talk about something called QPR, and it's suicide prevention training. It's designed to recognize the warning signs of suicide, and it's question, persuade, and refer people at risk for suicide for help. Paul Quinnett is a clinical psychologist and the president and CEO of the QPR Institute. It's an educational organization dedicated to preventing suicide. He joins Closer Look from the West Coast. Paul, thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Rose. Very happy to be here. I'm actually going to begin with a question from a listener. It says, Rose, can you really, can we really prevent suicide? Can we really prevent someone dying by suicide? I imagine you might get that question a lot, Paul. Oh, we do. Yes. Yeah. And the answer is, yes, we can. I've been doing this work for more than 50 years. And uh, it's not just my opinion about this matter. It's what the research shows. And so people should be encouraged uh, to act, not be fearful. I'll ask you the same question I just asked my first guest, Dr. Stevenson, in terms of how we've, how far this nation has come in addressing this issue. You just said you've been doing this work for 50 years, so I imagine that you, you've seen a lot in terms of not only just attitudes and, and stigma related to suicide, but there are some positive strides in changing all of that. Yes, yes. And I, I must say, I've I was sitting here thinking about things before uh, we started. And a lot of what happened in America that caused suicide prevention to advance happened right there in Marietta with some friends of mine, uh, both deceased now, uh, Jerry and Elsie Weirach, and their political action to get the Congress to recognize suicide as a a national health problem. And they enlisted Dr. Satcher, who was the... the, uh, leading the CDC at the time, who mm-hmm. was one of our personal heroes in this field, because he was the one that called for the first national uh, meeting on this issue and to bring all the brains of the country together to formulate the first national strategy for suicide prevention. We, America didn't have one. Uh, mm-hmm. Canada did, and so a few other countries, but uh, that was a new thing in America, to have an actual strategy to combat this problem, which your prior guest was articulating very nicely. So. Absolutely. And Dr. Satcher has been on this program for uh, many years now and on a number of different occasions. Paul, when we talk about can someone really, you know, we, we know we have experts and, and, and psychologists and psychiatrists and folks who have been trained and they work in this field. But for <clears throat> someone who's listening right now who may have pulled their car over to the side to listen to this program and says, you know, can I be, can I be trained? Can I 
somehow be educated about warning signs and, and how to help someone? Yes, we can do that. We've been doing that for over 22 years now. I was in my prior life, um, <laughs> I worked in a public mental health center for 30 years and ran the crisis line there and many other programs. <clears throat> and one of the things we taught ourselves really was what are those warning signs? What do they look like? What do they sound like? How do you know when you hear one? And we began to build, worked with public health, actually, in our county there in Spokane, and built out a program of suicide warning sign recognition training, which eventually became QPR. Um, And yes, we we train, oh, we've trained 6 million people around the world, but uh, probably more than 30 or 40,000 a month now in the U.S. Take us through, if you can, and I know we don't have a lot of time, but take us through, for our listeners, if you can, because you have these, this term, is called a gatekeeper. Right. Yeah, a gatekeeper is someone in a strategic position to recognize a friend or a co-worker, somebody who may be entering into a crisis that could lead to suicide. And they are taught to, to recognize those warning signs and how to make a compassionate intervention by clarifying with the person, are they thinking about suicide, Mm -hmm. which is 16 million adults and teens in this country pretty much every year. So it's somebody in your social network, your social circle, that you can uh, reach out and assist. Much like a CPR training, we, we use the same model as CPR, early recognition, early detection, early care. And so the, the, the model is the same. It's an emergency intervention for someone in a life-threatening mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a, and I was actually going to save this question for all of you at the end, but I have a listener who says, Rose, if you suspect someone is at risk for self-harm, how do you approach that concern with the person? Well, that's what we teach. How do you, you know, active listening and the, the first step skills, what are, what are the first things you do? And that's, Deals, that has to deal with your own attitudes, fears, and uh, worries, and it may be experienced with suicide yourself. You may have thought about suicide. You may have lost someone to suicide. There are all kinds of reasons to be fearful of this topic because it's been tabooed since St. Augustine. <clears throat> Excuse me, because it was, suicide is never, it was never a sin in the Bible, but it was interpreted as sinful mm-hmm. in the time of the city of God. So that, uh, and we've had a terrible prejudice against people thinking about suicide and and people who die by suicide. It's a long historical perspective, but we have to overcome these basic kind of fears and trepidations about intervening with somebody we care about. You know, uh, the doctor mentioned connections. Mm -hmm. This is all about our connections with our social others. People who care about us want us to be around, want us to live. We may not believe that for the moment if we're depressed and despairing and can't feel we can deal anymore. But this is where the, the connection saves lives. So we, we uh, that's what we teach. We, we By the way, we have instructors all over Georgia. Okay. You can go to our website and, and find an instructor by zip code on our website. Training is also available online, uh, but we would encourage you to if anyone's interested, just go to our website and, and search and find an instructor and get into a class uh, as soon as you can. I want to bring Dr. Ivy Stevenson back in the conversation, too, because I have a sure. listener that writes, Rose, often we hear that when, when someone has died by suicide, we hear their friends and loved ones say, I had no idea. So it seems that sometimes you, their warning signs aren't there or they, they're not that visible. Can your yeah. guest speak to that? I'll start with you, Paul. Well, they're not that visible because people are very uh, circumspect when they talk about their own feelings about wanting to die. It's a taboo subject. You can't just walk up to someone and say, I think I'm going to kill myself. That's not accepted. That's impolite. And politeness theory covers this subject very well in terms of how people negotiate difficult and taboo subjects when they when they converse. So mm-hmm. we teach the indirect suicide warning signs saying things like, People would be better off without me. Uh, I'm going to a better place. Please take care of my dog. I won't be coming back to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Now, they say all this coded language that is actually interpretable if you have a trained ear 
for recognizing when that communication is being coded and indirect, but still has that impact on your emotions. You may feel a twinge of fear or uncertainty mm-hmm. about what they said. That's when you learn to question. You clarify that statement and ask directly, that you frightened me, are you thinking about taking your own life? We teach you how to say those things. Dr. Ivy Stevenson, an adult who may be able to, who, who may communicate that, but that may not be the same for a, a, a child or, or a teenager. So is there, are there different types of, of warning signs through communication, through, through things that they're saying that, that one could look for? And, and also, you know, and I have a listener who says, you just can't go around asking everybody, hey, are you thinking about suicide just because they've been down? And I think that's fair. I think our listeners have some very good questions here, you know. Yeah, definitely very good questions coming in from um, listeners. Thank you for the, the questions. Um, one of the things um, that uh, Paul just mentioned in terms of the warning signs, um, you know, he is spot on when he said that a lot of people don't know what to look for. And so making people aware of what are the warning signs for suicide is one of the things we need to do. Um, we have um, definitely information about this, you know, the QPR training goes through this in addition mm-hmm. to other trainings, um, to give readers just, you know, a, a bit of that, because I want to make sure folks are able to recognize that after hearing this program. So I just want to provide a few of those warning signs. Sure. Um, some of them Paul mentioned, um, maybe, and again, they may be in coded language. So I really, um, he, he mentioned that you have to sometimes look and you may not be thinking of it in that way. Mm-hmm. So one of the things is talking about being a burden. Um, another is being isolated. Mm-hmm. There's also increased anxiety, talking about feeling trapped or in unbearable pain. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also increased, potentially um, increased substance use. That's something that sometimes we, we need to, to look for. Um, a way to access lethal means. This is definitely something that is a warning sign. Mm-hmm. Increased anger or rage. Sometimes mm-hmm. we don't see that. Um, we don't, you know, what's going on with this person, but increased anger in addition to um, expressing hopelessness, um, extreme mood swings, sleeping too little or too much. Mm-hmm. Um, with social media now, there's a lot of uh, talking or posting about wanting to die. And um, that's something that we also want to make sure we're monitoring, as well as making plans for suicide. So, you know, Paul mentioned, I mean, it is um, something that has a lot of stigma, and historically has had a lot of stigma around um, help seeking for uh, suicidal behavior. But there are five um, key, you know, it's I hear a lot of readers wanting to know what can I do? Mm -hmm. How do we know? And there's something called um, the Be The One Two campaign. So, so um, Dr. Ivy Stevenson, hold your point right there because I want to come back. I want to bring in Doreen Marshall after this break. You're listening to Closer Look. Hang with us. The future of mental health support sounds like not only destigmatizing, but moving beyond that to really give practical, usable solutions. The future of mental health support sounds like a river flowing. Sounds like the ability to listen over trying to fully understand. Sounds like the first couple of seconds of putting a vinyl on a record before the music starts to play. Sounds like realizing that you're your first priority and that taking care of yourself and making sure that you're okay is important so that way you can go and help other people the same way you know you would want to be helped as well. More and more people are feeling comfortable talking about mental health without the fear of being judged. What do you want the future of mental health to sound like? What do you want the future of mental health to sound like? What does the future of mental health support sound like to you? And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We're a special today on the program talking about suicide, everything from prevention, resources, and awareness. And I'm going to get back to Dr. Asha Ivy Stevenson and Paul Quinnett in just a moment, but I want to bring in Doreen Marshall, uh, Dr. Doreen Marshall, excuse me, Vice President of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Dr. Marshall, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me. You know, I want to go back to that PSA we played where everyone was talking about, you know, what does the future of mental health look like in our nation? And we've come a long way. I've been talking about that with Dr. Ivy Stevenson and with Paul Quinnett here. I want to get your thoughts on that, how the, how our, our nation's approach to mental health, from resources to prevention, campaigns and all that. How do you assess where we are as a nation? Well, it's a great question. And um, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, along with uh, partner groups, did a Harris poll this year. And that's basically surveying public perceptions. Mm -hmm. And we asked them specifically about mental health and suicide. And what we found was that eight in 10 people believe that their mental health and their physical health are equally important. And nine in 10 believe that suicide can be prevented. So they're better numbers than we've seen in previous polls, which tells us that we have a public that really uh, is seeing mental health differently for the, you know, for the first time. I I think the other thing we found, though, is that while eight in 10 people want to help when they believe someone is suicidal, um, not that many know what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, um, more than half of the adults said that not knowing how to get help or, or how to provide help really prevents that from happening. So we've got some work to do in terms of helping the public know how to intervene when someone is struggling with their mental health. And I want to take a moment because I want to focus on this statistic, which is here in Georgia. The third third leading cause of death, suicide, is for ages 10 to 24. And when you talk about the mindset of a 10-year-old versus the mindset of a 24-year-old, a 10-year-old still developing, you know, and so there has to be different approaches for that age group. And so, uh, Dr. Marshall, I'll start with you. Where are we in the nation in, in providing resources? And I know everyone will say, well, it starts at home, or what can the schools do, or maybe the faith based organizations, or maybe, you know, after school. There's so much here when we talk about that young of a person who is contemplating or, or dealing with suicidal emotions. Yeah, and I think to put those numbers in context, um, while we do lose 10-year-olds to suicide, the age group where we really start to see suicide numbers increase um, is in the teen years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not that younger kids are immune to suicide, but the the numbers get bigger as they progress through that age, that 10 to 24-year-old age span. And so I think an important thing to remember is that the reason we want to start talking about mental health early, social emotional awareness, helping kids identify emotions, even at age 10, is because we know early intervention matters. Mm -hmm. So kids get help for their mental health earlier on that trajectory. It actually has lifelong benefits for them, which is why we really want to start that early. But you're right, it involves having the resources to do that as well. Well, and when we talk about resources, and this is a question I had asked Dr. Ivy Stevenson and Paul, I bring you in the conversation too, because you train people at the at the QPR Institute here. You know, educators are already tasked with so much beyond just in front of the classroom. With an institute like yours, and I think I know the answer, would you like to see that there be some type of mandatory training early on for educators in this area? Well, yes, and we actually did that in Washington State, and I testified to the to the uh, health committees of the Senate and the House on the mandatory bill to require all health professionals and educators to have uh, a suicide prevention training, either a little or a lot, and in some cases it was as much as six hours of suicide prevention training for clinical providers like doctors and nurses Mm -hmm. and for school teachers and school health professionals like counselors and social workers and so forth. That was uh, a requirement of three hours. Eleven states now mandate some suicide prevention training for uh, people in different professions, and that seems to be a growing trend. I, I do some pro bono work with other states who are now preparing legislation for this session, actually, uh, to mandate training in their <clears throat> in their states. And I just add that once people realize that lives can be saved, uh, other professions have stepped up and volunteered for mandatory training. Mm. It's kind of heartwarming. We see here in the, in Washington <clears throat> state, excuse me, 
Uh, we see dentists, acupuncturists, physical trainers, wow. chiropractors, all kinds of people are signing up and to join the training uh, because there's just it's, it's the gap between nothing and you know poor education or no education and tragedy. It's a, it's a gap that we can fill. Dr. Marshall, I'll let you pick back up pick up on what uh, Paul had to say that you know we would love to see this training mandatory for. Practically any profession, but when it comes to educators, the importance of that. Yeah, well, there, there's lots of good news here, though. Um, one of the things I would say is that despite um, when there hasn't been a mandate, I think a lot of schools want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And um, at AFSP, the organization um, that I work with, um, uh, several years ago, it might be about three or four years ago, we actually partnered with the DOE in Georgia here to distribute some mental health training to schools to start implementing via in-services and things like that. So I do think even when there's not a mandate, what we're hearing from schools is they wanna do the right thing. They wanna be informed because they do see themselves as having a role in supporting student mental health. So um, you know, while we'll keep working with the legislature to, to make those changes, mm-hmm. it is to know that whether we have that or not, good things are happening and they and we can continue to encourage that. And we should note here in Georgia, just even and not this even in this current legislative session, there are some measures that would expand upon Georgia. The last measure they passed with the the Mental Health Parity Act, which is a a step forward. Dr. Ivy Stevenson, you know, for some, you know, Georgia was say said Georgia was a little slow, but, you know, we finally got there. The importance of having legislation because you don't want you some folks say, well, you always got to have legislation to get things done. But sometimes it seems like that's what it takes. Well, you, you, one of the things I want to emphasize and, you know, we highlighted schools here for a minute. Um, everyone, truly everyone has a role to play in suicide prevention. Um, you know, there's there's this is a complex problem. Schools are one um, aspect, but. We, we have something called the, the socio-ecological model. Mm-hmm. And those are the different levels. Like I said, you can't just look at the individual level. There's the relationship level. There's the community level. And there's the societal level. So, you know, what you heard Dr. Marshall talk about as well, you know, upstream, we call it, really trying to, to provide resources, population level impact upstream before the problem even starts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we talk about some of the, our approaches that are more downstream, which is something like identifying and supporting people at risk. But everyone truly has a role. Dr. Marsh, as we wrap up, I want to highlight one of your signature programs, which is Project 2025. This is a nationwide initiative to reduce the annual rate of suicide in the U.S. 20 percent by 2025. How optimistic are you we can reach that goal? Well, we did see the numbers start to go down the last few years. And unfortunately, in 2021, they started to climb back up again, which tells us we really need sustained effort here. Um, I think there were several things that happened over the last few years that contributed. But Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Ivy Stevenson said suicide is complex and requires complex solutions, right? It requires people to be informed, to understand their role, and for people to be able to reach help. Um, one of the areas, well, several of the areas of Project 2025 address some of the bigger problems we have here in Georgia, um, one of them being firearm suicide. So mm-hmm. this program is very focused on addressing firearm suicide, and we know in some states the rate of fire, firearm suicide is higher than in other states, and Georgia is one of those states. Um, but it also looks at healthcare gaps and where can we make sure that people at risk, as, when they do seek help, Um, get help they need throughout the experience, not just in the emergency room, but also in outpatient settings and others. We we find we lose people when they um, don't receive the help across the amount of time they need it. Um, So we got to go beyond just um, dealing with a crisis and and really find ways to help people across um, the time they need it. Paul, we got about two minutes left. I'm going to give each of you maybe 30 seconds or more, just if you want one takeaway for our listeners today, what should it be? Paul, I'll start with you. Well, I think the first thing I would hope people could do would be find what's called evidence-based care. Mm-hmm. That is mental health treatment that specifically focus on suicidal thinking and ideation and feeling. And there is, this care is available. It's limited. It's 
it goes by different by several uh, names. I mean, there's only three or four varieties, but CAMS, Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicide, uh, Dialectical Behavior Therapy, or DPT, and mm-hmm. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, one versions of these. If you're taking your brother or your sister or your loved one to someone for care, you can't assume that a mental health professional has this particular training, mm-hmm. which is fine. It may do okay with it, but by and large, we did a white paper a few years back showing the training deficit in providers of mental health care around the topic of suicide. They were not well trained, uh, and so they need advanced training after they graduate from schools, primarily. Right. And so I would recommend you ask your therapist if they've had training in the treatment of suicide per se. It's been a different All right, Doctor. treating yeah, I'm sorry. No, that's great. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. We're just up on time here. Dr. Yep. Asha Ivy Stevenson, your takeaway you hope for listeners today? Um, one big one is if, if you, anybody out there, if you or someone you know um, is in crisis, please contact the 988. Um, Rose mentioned it at the top of the show. 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by calling or texting 988. And they also have a chat. We know people, you know, may go on and go online and want to chat mm-hmm. at 988lifeline.org. Help is confidential and free. Dr. Asha Ivy Stevenson, excuse me, Dr. Doreen Marshall, Paul Quinnett. Thank you both for taking the time. I appreciate it. It's a conversation that we will have again. And thank you all for what you're doing to help so many people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's it for this special edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson and Daniel Razel. Our supervising producer is Tiffany Griffith. Our engineer is Sawyer Vanderwerth. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And again, that, that number is 988. If you missed any of today's program, it is online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.